everybody. Welcome to episode 15 of the Mountain Bike Podcast. I'm your host, Jonathan Lee, with my co-host, Stephen Lewis. Hey, Stephen. Good morning. Good morning, indeed. It's earlier than normal. We're squeezing this in on a weekend. Sunday mornings. Yeah, we're trying to get this one done. So, um, because we we were late on one, and and, and we just want to give you guys some extra. We're just, we're just getting caught up. Yep, exactly. So, uh, this is the Mountain Bike Podcast, where we talk about all things mountain biking, whether it be tech related, uh, whether it's product stuff, whether it's racing technique, anything like that. And today we're actually going to get into some more bike nerdery, um, but we won't get too deep into the nerdery. No, shouldn't be too terrible. Shouldn't be too bad. Uh, we're going to answer some of your questions. We're going to go over just a bit of news, not a lot because there really hasn't been a whole lot this week. And, uh, yeah, we're also going to give you some, some tips at the end here, which will be pretty good stuff. Uh, but first we've gotten a number of new reviews this week, Stephen. Lots of reviews. Yeah. Good stuff. Um, somebody says here, he says, I was hooked after the rear suspension explained podcast. I was always curious, but could never find this info. Uh, you guys explained my bike exactly and gave me advice on fixing what I didn't like. Um, he says that he also, he, he says that he blew out his knee doing the exact same thing, by the way. Oh, good. Yeah. So anyways, awesome. That's a good review. And I'm glad that we could help you. That was the goal with that one, with that, that podcast that we did. Hopefully that's a reference that you can share with other people. If you ever hear somebody complaining about not being able to dial in the rear suspension on their bike, send them to that podcast yeah. and tell them that if they don't get their question answered there to send us a question yep. and they can do it at mtbpodcast.com. Uh, it's pretty easy. Uh, another one. I just like this one. She says, Jonathan and Steven are great. We don't necessarily not disagree. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We'll take it. Yeah. Um, and then uh, another guy uh, says, the most informative and comprehensive podcast in the world. The world. I, you know, I'm, I'm always one to call out hyperbole, but this seems genuine here. Yeah. Yeah, I think, we're, I think it's okay. Anyway, it says, this is my new standard by which all other podcasts should be judged. Jonathan and Steven take the time to break down every single aspect of the sport of mountain biking that you could possibly need to know. They're both knowledgeable and witty, and they do a great job of covering current events in the cycling world, too. I feel awkward reading this one because it's so, like, you know, yeah. it's praising us so yeah. much. Anyways, um, he says, there's also a 9,000% chance that if you have a question, these two will answer it and not make you feel like a dummy for asking it either. The dummy part, yeah, definitely. Yeah. There's no such thing as a dumb question. The sure thing answering it, no, I can't guarantee that. We actually are getting a lot of lot more questions now, but please keep submitting them. Yeah. Um, once again, you can do that, mtbpodcast.com. Uh, but we have so many that it would just turn into pretty much the other podcasts that I do uh, every week for Trainer Road, which we're using their microphones. So once again, Yay, Trainer Road. thank you, Trainer Road. It's about as close as we get to being sponsored. Um, but uh, with that, with Trainer Road, it's all the Ask a Cycling Coach podcast is all for roadies and triathletes, and it's 100% answering your questions. Yeah. So, um, and that's good, but it, this is different. So yeah. just want to keep it different. Uh, anyways, legitimately can't say enough good things about about these guys. So awesome. That's quite the review. You know, that review and $6 will buy us a nice drink at Starbucks. That's, <laughs> yes, very true. Very true. So um, print those out for us. Yeah, indeed. You can find us on social channels, uh, wherever you may be, at MTB Podcast, or if you're on Twitter, the MTB Podcast. And you can share stuff with us there. Check out Instagram. We're always putting up cool images, uh, pretty cool stuff. In fact, yesterday's image, Stephen, uh, you shared that one, yeah, because you were doing something pretty cool yesterday. Yeah, we went down uh, to Grass Valley and helped the Sanchez family uh, do a trail day and get getting ready for the TDS Enduro, which is the Dirty the Sanchez the, Enduro, the Dirty Sanchez Enduro. We've yeah. spoken about it in previous episodes. Yep. Uh, it's one of the 
Actually, I'm just going to come out and say it is the coolest enduro that we have up in North America. Like, I agree. And it, and I say coolest because of the vibe that's there, the people that are there, um, the area that you're riding in, everything about it is so unique. Exactly. You know, it's not like it's not just like another race and, uh, you know, it, Enduro certainly is an XC. I mean, people aren't, you know, it isn't that uncomfortable roadie-ish vibe at all, right? Enduro doesn't have that. But this is about as far from that as you could get. Oh, absolutely. One. And some Enduro races I've been to, you know, they, they're pretty intense. Yes. And not to say this one doesn't have some seriously intense riding going on, because oh, it yeah. absolutely does. But the people that are there are just enjoying it. And the vibe off the off the actual race, you know, courses off the segments is... That's why it's the coolest. It's just phenomenal. It's yeah. such a fun race to be at. You guys were building a bunch of stuff yesterday, right? What, what were? I don't know how much you can share. Oh, uh, I can share everything. Cool. Oh, it's, uh, we were yeah. um, doing a lot of uh, um, a lot of trail building and maintenance and getting you know a lot of like uh, manzanitas and overgrowth you know cut back and because they're going to be doing um, hosting sixteen of the uh, Semperfy project guys. Oh, sweet. Um, so we've got to get them you know, basically ADA access to some of the gnarliest terrain in Northern California. Wow. And so we're going to be, there's going to be like 16 side-by-sides um, hauling the Holy racers God. around, the Semper Fi guys. Um, and so we got to get them access to where we can take, you know, four of them are, you know, double amputees and they are in wheelchairs. And so we have to be able to get them to where they can spectate. Um, so yesterday we had to cut out, you know, about 150 square feet of 12 foot tall manzanitas Holy so cow. that they could see the red beard. Um, that's some rock work. garden, which is where Jeff Kendallweed broke his iliac crest last year. Yikes. Um, so to get them access and be able to see that we had to do a bunch of that. Um, Mason bond friend of the podcast. Um, he was building his trail. So he had a crew of like nine guys and they were, you know, including, working on including our friend, Zach Waymire. Yeah. Zach Waymire and Liam Ruff. And there's a bunch of guys um, that nice. were all working on Mason's mob, which is his new trail. Kudos that Liam. Has two big road gaps in it. <laughs> nice. Uh, one of them, it's probably, you know, lip to lip. It's about a 25 foot sender, <laughs> about 10 to 12 feet of drop. And when you hit the, when you hit the kicker, you can't see the landing. So it's nice. one of those blind. That's comfortable. Right after you just did the first drop there. Nice. It's literally drop into drop and you, yeah, it's a, they're good. Wow. Good trails. But they're going to be well-made. That's the thing. That's the thing is Mason knows how to build a good jump. Yeah. So, And you guys are doing uh, wall rides, I saw. Yeah, um, they're uh, paint, doing a lot of painting yesterday. It's cool. It um, looks did a like bunch awful. of the goggle mans on the, uh, on the wall rides. And then um, um, the girlfriend, Jolene, did the, uh, the goggle man on the side of the container at the Sky Bar. Which, if you're wondering what the goggle man is, you may have seen it on WTB <clears throat> Saddles. Um, but it's, or if you've looked at anything for TDS, it's the outline of the goggles and then the mustache. Yes. Um, we don't need to go any further into why that mustache is there. You can use the internet for that. And I, I advise discretion, <laughs> but anyways, uh, but that's the logo of the event. Yeah. So it's pretty cool. It's like the course is like way more branded than, than most course. And I like to see that. Yeah. And that's in the goggle man was actually designed originally by buddy Newman of WTB who, um, was tragically killed before last year's event. Yeah. And, uh, so last year was the buddy Newman invitational. Mm-hmm. And, uh, so there's, you know, Hey buddy is a trail there. And then the goggle man is really his design and kind of, it's going to be an iconic, um, homage to him 
yeah. in general and the whole family, the whole Newman family. It's pretty cool. Yeah. Uh, pretty cool to see. So that is coming up at the end of April, correct? The weekend after Sea Otter. Yep. Uh, so if any of you guys are going to be in the NorCal area at that time, you um, need to go. You should go and check this race out. Um, spectate because it's an invite only uh, event, right? Yeah, it's an invite only for racing. For racers. And there's some big names this year. And you know, I know he'll be listening to this and he's debating on whether to go right now. Um, I know Nate Hills, I don't think is going. I don't think so. He's going this year. Yeah. Yeah. He, we were talking about it and he said that he doesn't, he doesn't know if his drinking game is on point enough to go this year. <laughs> so, Fair. um, but then, uh, Eric stores, a uh, good friend of mine who is a killer trials writer, okay. but he got an invite. Okay. And I told him, or, and I heard, I haven't actually talked to him yet about this, but Eric, if you're listening, if you don't go, you're missing out, especially because he's such a good technical rider. Yeah. Like that dude never dabs a foot, never needs to, can hop up and down on anything because of the trials moto experience. Yeah. There are some technical spots on that course, man. Yeah. And so that type of stuff, he's just so good with picking lines and everything else. He'd be really good. Yeah. And so yesterday we actually also did a, a bunch of course walking and kind of nailed down this, the 14 stages that we're going to have, cause it'll be seven stages per day That's a lot, and it's going to be a good race. This is going to be a fun race to watch fun race to just uh, in general. This is an amazing race. Uh, vigilante right now, um, <clears throat> has, considerable amount of water flowing down it. So we might not get to see, you know, uh, Marco Osborne's typical Superman near Just crashes. Wide open, feet, somehow wide blows through. Yeah. So, but, um, Vigilante's I, one of the trails. Yeah. Okay, so. so we'll see how the, how the, the final course goes, you know, as, as things start to dry out, but the dirt is tacky. Things are going to be fast. Things are going to be fun. And it's always a good time. You know, yeah. RC course, um, RC rock crawling course, giant fire pit, sky pit bar, bikes. pit, pit bikes. bike racing, you name it. And yep. it's the compound is is fun this year. It's going to be beautiful. It's going to be a good time. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. So anyways, uh, stay tuned for more updates on that yep. as we lead up to it. It's going to be a really cool race. We'll be there actually at the event and we'll have some really cool podcast content from that. So yes. um, moving right along, let's get into the news, Stephen. Okay, really the only thing that we're going to cover is a tiny little event. I don't know if you've heard about it. It's called Crankworks. Have you heard about that? Um, I think so. Okay, well, it's, it's a thing, and okay. it happens down in New Zealand. And uh, we talked about the Enduro that happened there, the EWS round yep. in Rotorua last week, but there was a lot more that happened. Um, so we had uh, from the Enduro Challenger event, which the Challenger event is... As I understand, that one is actually, it's not, it's, I like the pros, the EWS pros don't, don't race this. This is for other people. The challenger. Yes. Yeah. The challenger is more for, it's really your amateur. Mm-hmm. Like it's your. Still total shredders. Yes. Oh, absolutely. Mm-hmm. But I say amateur is in that they don't have their pro card. They have a day job. Right. And they exactly. race for fun. Yep. In the male category, Lewis Hamilton uh, took first. The Formula One driver. Who yeah. knew? Awesome. Who knew? They, they misspelled it. Here, they did. But yeah. 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 Uh, yeah. Also looks different standing on the podium there. But mm-hmm. Connor Hamilton got second. Uh, Peter Joint got third. In the female side of things, Michaela Gatto. That name sounds familiar. Yeah. She Canadian. got first. Yep. And then Sarah Fox got second. And Eva Deathlefsen, I believe. Uh, that's how you'd say God that. Bless you. <laughs> yes. <laughs> got third. And she is from Denmark. Uh, so nice job there. Then we had the Pump Track Challenge uh, presented by Rock Shocks, which I was, I didn't, 
which Cody Kelly, our, our boy, we were hoping, I was hoping that he would do really well. He actually, he ended up getting eliminated in the first round, which yeah. is a bummer. That's okay. But he probably looks cooler than everybody else doing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's just how Cody's style is, right? Absolutely. Um, but the cool part about that one is a local dude took it. Yeah. It's crazy because Adrian Laurent is like the guy that wins all the pump track challenges at all Crankworks and everything else. Yeah. He's super good. Um, a good friend of mine, Paul Basagoidia, who was incredible at this stuff pre-injury uh, because of his huge history in BMX racing and everything else. Uh, he and Adrian used to be pretty darn close all the time, right? Yep. Um, Adrian got dethroned by a local guy. And he was wearing like jorts. Yeah. Yeah. His name's Keegan Wright. Uh, so good job, Keegan Wright. And then BMX legend himself, Barry Nobles, got third, which is pretty cool to see. And uh, Barry Nobles, Barry Nobles' partner, Caroline Buchanan, she got first on the women's side of things. She's also a BMX legend. Oh, yeah. If you guys watched any of the Olympics or anything else, you saw her shredding there. And I like um, seeing Jill Kittner get second there. That's actually yeah, good. Yeah. I don't even know how old Jill is now. I mean, she's she's older than Caroline. Yeah. Um, and she's she's so competitive. Like you could tell, like when she was she was really bummed she did not win. Yeah. Um she's such a good rider. Yeah. So cool to see. She's phenomenal. Yeah. Yeah. Um and then Danielle Beecroft got third. Uh, so that's the pump track. Uh Mons Royal dual speed and style or Mons Royale. Dude, this the speed and style event, especially this year, so ridiculous. Crazy. I mean, did you see people, you know, on these on these senders pulling, you know, 360s and just even flip tricks just in the middle of a speed and style race. It's like crazy. I just loved it. It was so cool to it, just watch. It was cool to see Mitch Ropolato jump up his or step up his trick game. Too. Yeah, absolutely. And I know he's been working a lot on that. I've seen that on Instagram. So good job, Mitch. Yeah. Um, Mitch got third. Adrian Laurent got second. Uh, there he is again. And Jakob Vensal, he got first from the Czech Road from the Czech Republic. So good job, Jakob. Oh yeah. Then the downhill. Uh, so the downhill took place, and Jack Moyer, you may have recognized his name from last week's podcast. We talked about the Enduro. Yep. Got first. Uh, Aussie legend McKenna got second, which, I mean, this type of terrain is pretty similar to where he rides because he's from the north coast of Australia, from yeah. Cairns in that area. So, And it's pretty similar in the sense that it's jungly, right? Yeah. And Elliot Jackson got third. Nice job, Elliot. Mm-hmm. Uh, female McHannah's sister, Tracy Hannah. And I'm not, I'm just saying that to tie in a reference. She doesn't ride on his coattails. She's an incredible athlete herself. Yeah. Um, Tracy Hannah got first. Good job, Tracy. Uh, Emily Siegenthaler, she got second from Switzerland and Casey Brown got third. So, and then the last bit, the slope style, Nikolai Rogotkin took it. And he's, he has, if Nikolai doesn't crash. Yes. He, it seems like he wins. And and then when Sam Manuk are there and Reader and stuff, it's like two totally different ways to skin that cat. Of course. Like Nikolai looks like just he's just throws it all out there, and it's a lot more crazy, and he throws huge, massive tricks. Yeah. And it's much more calculated on the side of Sam Manuk and, and Reader, but yeah. he's and so I, good. I think that was Nikolai's issue in 2015 at Crankworks was that he was trying to send stuff too hard yes. under that stress from Reader and Sam Manuk and everybody being there. Yeah. And, you know, it... it, it kind of screwed him in the end. So, but yeah, no, that's cool to see him on the top. Yep. Uh, Torcato Testa from Italy. He got second and Emil Johansson uh, got third from, from Sweden. So yeah, pretty cool stuff. That was Crankworks. It came and went. And now the next bit of racing we aren't covering now, but will be coming up is going to be the EWS. It's going to Tasmania, which should be interesting. Yes, should be. uh, It'll be this coming weekend. So if you're listening to it, um, it'll be the first or the second weekend in April. Going to be some good stuff. Uh, So looking forward to that one. That covers the news, Stephen. Let's get into the questions because we got a lot of them. Question. 
It's a ridiculous question. False. Well, that's debatable. All right, this first one, and, and I think a trend is starting where they're sending in not their names, just other names. Just funny names. Yeah, that could be it. Um, but let's. Uh, the first one is from Hit the Wall. He says, question about endurance XC events. Um, he says, I'm 50 plus and, or sorry, 50 miles plus. He is Big not 50 events. plus. Yes. Or she, I'm not sure. It says um, I'm a thin guy. Uh, So so there we are in in male. In fact, anyways, uh, it says, I have a question about endurance, sexy events and feeding from the day before to post ride. I'm a thin guy at six to 155 pounds and seem to hit the wall at about mile 40 thinking I just don't have the reserve. That's what, that's what his thoughts are. My routine is to eat a bit more than, and when he says I don't have the reserve, what he's really talking about is the fact that since he is thin, I assume that he's talking about, he doesn't have like onboard fat stores to be able to pull from. We're going to cover that in just a bit. He says, my routine is to eat a bit more than normal a couple days prior. Day of, I'll do oatmeal and a bagel. During the event, I'll eat, and he says in quotes, uh, every 30 minutes, giving me 60 calories per hour. So what I really think that means is probably a gel. Yeah. About 60 is usually about a gel or a pack of, you know, uh, gummies or whatever. Right. Exactly. He says, this is based on the thought of not being able to digest more than that. Uh, he says, also, can you give your opinion on Carbo Rocket 333? Uh, and, and yeah, so let's cover that. Um, anyways, Carbo Rocket uh, 333. They're a company out of Utah, and they have everything from just standard, like, um, electrolyte mix for your okay. drinks. And then they also have actual, like, caloric drinks that are, well, they all have calories, but they'll actually have like a lot of, um, it's like a nutritional drink. Exactly. Yeah. 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 <clears throat> and my words are escaping my mind right now. So bear with me on this. I've never used carbo rocket. That said, I know a lot of people that do use it. Um, and even some people with fragile stomachs that use it. Yeah. So, because usually if you have any type of a drink, that's like uh, one that's supposed to help with endurance by giving you the fuel that you would have. So you don't have to eat. It just gives you the, the calories, the glycogen, whatever else you need through the drink itself, the drink mix. Yeah. If that's the case, then yeah, you could try drinking it, but usually those tend to be pretty harsh on the gut. Um, but I've heard that's not the case with Carbo Rocket. And I actually know a lot of people that, that use it and even some that are sponsored by it and I've broken them down and stuck it to them and asked, tell me what you really think. And I have only heard positive things from everybody. So now getting back into what you're talking about, I'm going to work backwards. So during the event, you eat, um, 60 calories an hour. That's, or he says in his, every 30 minutes, I should say. So that's about 120 calories per hour. You are burning more than 120 calories per hour when you are racing. A lot more. A lot more. Yeah. So, I mean, it depends on each person exactly what you're burning, but you are burning more than that. So basically what you're doing is you're running yourself down. And you mentioned that in 50 plus mile races at about mile 40, you start to feel flat. That could very well be be because you are not fueling yourself enough beforehand. If you're a really lean person, uh, there, that doesn't necessarily mean that you don't have fat stores, um, that, or that doesn't mean that you don't have energy stored. Uh, that's, you know, Actually, let me step back here. So during your ride, you should be eating more. Uh, you can find that in the form of rice cakes that you can make from scratch labs. I have great luck with that, but it is a little harder to eat on a mountain bike race. Yeah. That's pretty tough. Uh, so something that I've looked into that uh, and that I've used actually to great success, it doesn't have a lot of calories in it. Bacon. It, uh, yeah, actually, bacon would be probably <laughs> really tough because it give you cotton mouth, but it'd be very tasty. Yeah. Um, but I've used chia seed gel. 
And if you mix chia seed gel with some type of flavor that you want, um, some type of like fruity flavor or anything like that, it's actually really good. Yeah. And it doesn't give you a lot of calories. Uh, we're talking like in one like pack. And if you were to take a bottle, uh, like a normal drinking mm-hmm. bottle and you were to have two bottles on your bike, you had one with water and then one with that, I would take that one bottle and I would fill it about three quarters or a little more with chia seed gel that I would fill the rest up with water or whatever my flavored drink is that I want. And I would shake it up. So okay. then it comes out a little easier. Okay. Um, but that will usually give you in that bottle, you'll probably have somewhere around 360 calories, maybe 350 calories. Okay. If you can pack the whole thing full of that. Of course. So that's something that you can do. That's really easy to drink. Um, you could also technically do the same thing with gel, but the reason I did chia seed gel is because it doesn't mess up my stomach. Yeah. So it's a little easier on there. But in your case, if you don't have that issue, then uh, I do see a lot of people actually putting gels into a bottle and then just taking swigs from that. You have to water it down though, because it's not going to get through the valves very easily. um, Otherwise, so you know, watering down gel could be a little gross because some of it clumps instead of actually just thinning out, which is really gross. Um, You never want to feel like you're drinking floaters in a race, but (laughs) uh, yeah, that would be very gross. Um, But when you talk about your pre-morning routine, you say oatmeal and a bagel. Pre, pre-race routines are so personal yeah. in terms of what you eat. So like, I almost don't have much advice there. I can give you an N equals one scenario. Yeah. Uh, before my races, I usually have in the morning, I have three eggs. And then I, I always try to time my last meal, whether it's breakfast or whether it's lunch and it's a later race or whatever it is. I always time my last meal three hours before I start my race. Yeah. Uh, two and a half to three hours. Some people need more or less time. You have to experiment with that. Um, but, uh, and then I usually have three eggs and then I have oatmeal and then I'll usually with that oatmeal, I'll have, um, some jam that I, we get like a jam that's like, uh, from Southern, from central California, we get it and it's really nice. Like mama's stuff. Right? Yeah. Mama's jam. Good stuff. Yeah. yeah. So we get that and then put it on there and, and it's, uh, <clears throat> that's usually what I'll have beforehand. I'll have like a banana too, maybe. Yeah. Um, but pre-race is all unique. But getting to the root of the thing, if you're lean, that doesn't mean that you are running low. Liz Lyles is a professional triathlete here in Reno. She's an absolute, like she is one of the most elite athletes in the world. Uh, She's been ranked in the top 10 in Ironman triathlon for a while. Yeah. Like she's incredibly good. Um, Won multiple Ironman events. Very good. She is one of the most lean humans I have ever seen. Like so lean, like veins on her stomach lean. Yeah. So, and she is, and she can ride 120 miles at a high pace on her TT bike and then go run a marathon. And before that she swam and she just makes sure that she is taking in the type of stuff that she needs on when she's doing it. Yeah. Uh, The fact is if your body is going to, let's say that you are running out of sugar, which is kind of difficult to actually do. But let's say you're running low on sugar. If you're depleting sugar, usable sugar in your system. Yes. So you're depleting that. Your body is not going to default to like, oh, I got all this fat here, so I'll just eat that. If if you're at a race pace. Yeah. Uh, fat takes a little longer for it to burn. It's a slow burning fuel and it takes a little, it's a bit more of a costly process. Yes. So if your body is not working at a very high rate, sure, it can do that. But if your body is working at anything 
uh, you know, above, you know, we're talking 70% of your threshold, 60% of your threshold, even 50% of your threshold. Depending on how you train your body. Yep. Yeah. You're going to be using a whole lot more glycogen there. Yeah. So a person that has more fat or less fat, that doesn't mean that they have more to pull from later on in the race because they're more fat. Yeah. It doesn't, uh, that's, so that's a, a misnomer. In your case, it really does sound like you are just are not fueling enough during the race. I agree. And I also don't think um, he's fueling enough pre-race. I think, you know, putting um, things like different, you know, whatever nut butters you like yep. in your oatmeal before yep. your race. or Make it take calorie your, dense. You have to have a very calorie dense meal before and even, you know, the day before for your lunch. You know, typically, as I've always understood it, your lunch the day before your race is really where, you know, you should be carb loading, quote yeah. unquote. Yeah. And that I like is, the quotes, by the way. Good job. Yeah, good air quotes. They were yeah. solid. Um, <laughs> yeah. So that is where I think you need to start ramping up your fat intake. Yeah. And you really need to be car, you know, calorie dense. Yeah. Up until your race, and that's where you need to be. I don't think oatmeal and you know what did you say? Um, oatmeal and a bagel. I think you need to be oatmeal and put you know a you know quarter cup of almond butter. Yeah. In with that, and a yeah. tiny bit of honey. Put some avocado onto that bagel. And, exactly. You know, and or insert some butter if that works for yeah, your some, stomach. Even yeah. an, even nut butter on the on yep. the bagel. But that's I. You need some more calories. Yeah, before your race. I'd agree with that. And the one thing that you do say is that, you know, days before you start adding it on and, and the last, the worst thing you could do is just like eat a massive amount of pasta. Well, not the worst thing, but it's not a great idea to just eat a massive amount of pasta the night before. That's because, just Tuesdays. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah true. Yeah. <laughs> Cause you're not going to sleep well if yeah. you do that and your sleep is so important to how you perform the next day. Um, but you know, two days before a big event like this, start ramping it up. And one thing that I usually like to use is rice. I prefer to yep. pasta in most cases cases. And I don't eat an insane amount of rice with everything, but, uh, usually in my day to day, if I was to go to Chipotle and go get a, a bowl, right. Yeah. I don't get rice, but if I'm leading up to a race, I would get rice. Yeah. So that's just an example of like how I would do it. And I don't eat a bunch of it, but that's how I'd put, start adding that stuff on. So anyways, hopefully that answers your question and good luck in your next races. Steven, what's the next question? Next question is from 26 er that still parties. Um, DT Swiss 350 54 tooth ratchet. Should I clean and relube more often than the standard 18 tooth? No. Same and amount of time. He's talking about his hub there. Yeah, in the hub, the engagement ratchets in the DT Swiss 350 and 240, you can increase the engagement um, and basically decrease the, the freewheel degrees yep. by going from the standard 18 tooth setup to the big 54 tooth. For those that are familiar with the standard hub, it's almost like adding in more poles. Exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's like I more mean, poles. it really is. Yeah. yeah, that is what it's doing. Um, so, uh, no, you shouldn't relube them and clean them any more often than standard. It's all the same. Um, just do it a couple times a season, pull it apart, put the red grease in there. They give you enough for like three years worth of use out of those. Yeah, you don't need a lot of <clears throat> grease. No. And in fact, it's just going to push grease out if you put too much in there because the tolerances are so tight. Yep. And then what that's going to do is just collect dust possibly too if things get there. So you don't need a lot of grease. And uh, I actually, I actually resurface or re, I pull my hub apart probably once a month. And I just, because it's so easy with the DT Swiss deal, with DT Swiss hubs, at least the ones as a star ratchet system, you pull your cassette off your wheel. You don't need any tools. Nope. You just pull and it thunks and it pops right off. Yep. And then you're able to get right there to the star ratchets. There's no pawls and springs. Well, there are two springs, but they're just in a totally different orientation and they're two like geared teeth that's, or two round gears and they have teeth on them and they, they ratchet together. Yeah. It's a really easy system to keep clean and to, and to maintain. And I, 
I take care. I just check mine all the time just yeah. to make sure that everything's okay because it takes less than five minutes. Exactly. So it's really easy. Yeah. And so next question, um, do you guys relace your own wheels or pay someone? Um, I build my, I build wheels. I build wheels for customers, mine. and I build Jonathan's when he needs it. Yep. Um, YouTube makes it look easy, but I'm certain it takes experience to have a true, legit wheel. Also, my wheels are old, and I'm paying for my fourth broken spoke. If you're starting to break spokes, your your spokes and nipples are seeing the end of their tension life, so they're yep. basically at, the, at their limit. So you need to relace them at a minimum, Chances are your rims also have seen some fatigue over the over yeah. the years, um, so I'd be looking at a new wheel set. Um, personally, what I would do is I would take your wheel set now, replace them, have someone else build you the wheels you want, mm-hmm. and then take your old used wheels, completely tear them apart, and then figure out the whole over over under and you know how to interlace or interlace which one you know whichever way you like to lace a wheel up. And basically the difference between intralace and interlace is interlacing means that your trailing spoke, just say, goes over the first leading spoke, over the second leading spoke, and then crosses under the third leading spoke on a a three-cross system. Um, One of the things that I've started playing around with over the last year is actually doing an intralace where none of the spokes cross Mm. each other over, over, under, they'll just be over, 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 or under, 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 nice. depending on the orientation of the spoke. And that actually creates less harmonic vibration, which apparently keeps spoke tension up because the nipples don't Makes vibrate sense. and loosen. Makes so sense. just play with different ideas, play with different lacing patterns, and really just you know mess around with your used old wheel that is thrown away, and just start building the wheel back and forth and just see how you like it, see if you can get used to it, and then just start building your wheels from there. It's yep. all trial and error. That's how I started building wheels is I just decided to start building wheels. Yeah. Wheel lacing is an art because there's so many different ways you can do it and, and you're really defining the characteristics of the wheel. Exactly. So it's it's not as if there is one correct way to do it. There are different ways and each wheel might be a little different too. That's yeah. the thing that... So yeah, it probably does look a little easier on YouTube, but the only way to learn it is by diving in and and getting your hands dirty with it. So Exactly. Uh, Johnny, he says, Hey guys, love the podcast. Five stars. Thank you, Johnny. Appreciate it. Uh, how do you guys, and if you want to rate the podcast like Johnny did, you can do so at, uh, just look us up on iTunes, MTV podcast. You can find it there. He says, how do you guys feel about high quality steel hardtails for non-race applications to just go out and have fun? I only like steel hardtails if they also make beer. So that probably means you like Reeb cycles. I love Reeb. Yeah. Reeb and Oscar Blues. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Reeb okay. out of Colorado. They build some amazing uh, steel hardtails and titanium. Yep. Um, I almost had them build me a titanium dirt jump bike this year, and then I cool. decided I didn't want to spend money on a titanium dirt jump bike. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> pretty, so as much as pretty, I would actually pretty use Pretty bougie it. right yeah. there, yeah. So um, no, they, they build amazing stuff. There's a lot of really good steel manufacturers out there, and you know what? They're just... Yeah, steel is actually a really fun vintage, but also, you know, very artistic. Yeah, and, and functional. Just, and they're very functional. Yeah. You get a lot of good compliance out of steel. Yeah. And so they're just a really good, yeah, so no, I, I, I like steel hardtails for non-race applications. Yeah, and I've even been tempted many times to pick one up that would just be like... Uh, 
I think of it in my mind as like the bike that I would take to the pump track that I would take around our neighborhood when I'm towing Simon around in a trailer Yeah, when I could just go on an easy ride with some friends. And if I just wanted to play around on something different, right? Absolutely. Um, yeah, I think that, and the cool thing is you can find certain ones. I mean, that they're, they can be pretty darn cheap. They can also be pretty expensive, they can um, be. but you know, you can find a bike like that. That's pretty cheap. Yeah. Uh, even so. Raleigh, um, started manufacturing their Tokel trail hardtail. Yes, yeah. They have a 4130 chrome molly version of that bike that comes with a full one by 10 system or one by 11 now and a 140 fork and it's actually a pretty cool little bike yeah so but yeah no steel bikes are fun heck yeah get a steel bike i agree train hard 22 says first off awesome podcast this is what i've been looking for for years and he says i ride a santa cruz tall boy too but hashtag yeti <laughs> so yeah there you go um your your tall boy's a good bike too. He says, I've been cycling since 09 and I've, and I've always struggled with finding the right saddle and saddle position. I've competed in many different events in the local sport level. That means cat two. If uh, those of you who don't know and landed a few podiums over the years, for some reason, I just never seem to feel content with the current saddle that I am riding on or the position that it's in. I constantly comb pictures of pro bikes, their saddles, and comparing how they position their saddle, essentially level to nose down. I then find myself constantly tweaking my saddle in between rides and second-guessing my saddle position. I've tried a few different bike fittings, but for some reason, I have not found a bike fitter that really knows how to dial in a mountain bike fit, so I'm really left to figure it out on my own. I'd love to hear your thoughts on how to dial in a mountain bike fit, keep up the awesome podcast. Um, first thing is if he's tried a lot of positions, a lot of saddles and a lot of saddle angles, I think he needs to look at his chamois as well. Yes. Because that might be an option. Yeah. I've only, you know, when, when I decide that I want to change saddles because I'm finding, you know, when I went from the, the WTB volt to the Silverado because of, you know, getting some pain down there. Um, I only tried two different saddles and then the Silverado was perfect. So I was like, okay, I'm done. Yeah. So if you're trying different stuff and not finding anything, any saddle is going to hurt on a crappy chamois. Yeah. Also, something to be said for that is how you hold yourself on the saddle makes yeah. a huge difference. And a lot of that can come down to core uh, strength and conditioning, yeah. uh, flexibility, everything else. But when you sit on a saddle, uh, your soft tissue and uh, you know the perineum should not be pressing on the saddle. Yeah. You should have your sit bones pressing on the saddle. We've talked about this before, but basically if you're to sit down on a concrete ledge and you were to kind of bring your, your knees up high, uh, you would feel... Th- parts of your pelvis, two parts, like pushing into the concrete and it yeah. would be very uncomfortable. And those are your sit bones. Yeah. Those should be anchored to your saddle. That's your anchor point. You shouldn't have anything else pushing you. Yeah. So <clears throat> that's the first thing to look for in that, in the saddle that you're using. That said, I see a number of things here. Number one, if you are constantly switching saddles, it does take your body a, a little bit of time to get used to a saddle because the different angles of a saddle, a different shape is going to cradle your pelvis in a different way and have you sitting on it differently. Yep. So if you're constantly switching saddles, it makes sense that you won't find one that you're absolutely in love with because you're constantly changing something that your body just wants to get used to. And if you're constantly changing the position and the angle of the same saddle, yes. same thing goes. It's tricky. That said, we certainly understand understand the point of trying to dial it in and find the right ones. Um, in terms of saddle angle, probably one of the worst things to do is to look at what the pros do. Uh, there, because there are a lot of pros that get way down the rabbit hole and because they're pros, nobody else can question what they do with their bike setup. So they just do what they think is best. And a lot of the time it's wrong. Yeah. Like I'm thinking of, for example, Yaroslav Kolavi. He is one of the best cross country racers in the world. Uh, I don't know Yaroslav, but, uh, what I do know is that his saddle position is incorrect. He makes it work, 
but it is incorrect. His point's like straight down. Yeah. And you see a lot of people that have saddles pointing down or pointing up. Your saddle should be level. It should be as close to level as possible. And if it isn't level, that means that, uh, and and it's uncomfortable, then that means that you have a mix match. In other words, your saddle doesn't match with either the way you are shaped or the way your, your, you hold your body on that bike and your, yeah. How you're positioned on that bike. Yep. So that needs to be taken into account. Uh, Another thing that people don't consider with saddle height, but also is reach. How far forward are you reaching? Do you have a super long stem that is making you rotate your pelvis further forward than you would like? And it's pushing on soft tissue. Then in that case, you know, maybe you can look at taking that stem. If your reach is that long, that it's making you fold forward like that. Yeah. Might want to get a shorter stem, uh, might need to get some slightly narrower bars. If you have super wide bars, uh, something like that, uh, to be able to put yourself so that you're more evenly planted on the saddle. Yeah. Now, if you're, if you're on a fixed, you know, seat post, if you're, you know, running a setback 20 and you need a zero offset or vice versa or whatever, there's lots of positioning things that yeah. need to be taken into account here. And two things before I share my personal preferences for this, but two more things. Uh, the other thing is as you get more fit or less fit, your muscle structure, tone, everything else changes. Yes. And as your saddle will also need to probably change or maybe not, but you'll just have to get used to feeling slightly different. If you lose a lot of fat in that area and you gain muscle tone, it might feel different or the opposite, you know, will feel different. So that's something to consider. And also the saddle that you're using, if it's a demo saddle, how many days have been put on that saddle? How worn out is that saddle? Because saddles do wear out. They do. Um, and you, if somebody says, oh, this is the saddle that I've loved and I used for five years, something like that, a lot of the time in that case that those saddles get so worn out that actually it's not great for them. It may be something you're used to, but it'd be better to have a stiffer saddle, one that's a little bit more, that supports your weight better. Yeah. So now getting into what I do personally for my saddle, I have the Specialized Phenom. It's one of my favorite saddles. Uh, I love it. It's got a shorter nose on it. It's got a good channel in the center Mm -hmm. so that if you are rolling forward during a hard effort or anything like that, uh, it doesn't put too much pressure on on spots that you don't want pressure. Uh, but the one thing that I really like about that is that it's a pretty firm saddle. You can get it in like a gel or even like a thicker padding one, but I have the lowest padding one and I like that it's a little bit more firm, but that saddle, uh, just works perfectly with my pelvis. I don't need to, um, I don't roll my pelvis forward. I keep a pretty rolled back pelvis, which is actually in terms of power output, a better position. Yeah. Um, so I, I keep mine slightly rolled back and this doesn't, I don't feel like it's got a wing on the back. That's not allowing me to do that. Of course. Really nice. Now on my ASR, it's a medium. I have a 90 millimeter stem, which is a bit on the long side, but it's for XC. So mm-hmm. it works. And I am five eleven, and I have my seat moved all the way forward yeah. in its rails. So it's, it's all the way forward. And you'll see a lot of XC guys doing that where they have their saddles moved as far forward as they can because they're trying to get closer to over the that bottom bracket yes. instead of behind it. Yeah. And when you're looking at pedaling performance, that's a really good thing that you want to keep. That's more aggressive stance and better for mm-hmm. power output, better for traction. Yep. Yeah. It's nice to see because for a while seat angles. So the angle of the seat tube was getting more relaxed, leaning further back. And it's nice to see some brands now going the other way, going very vertical. Yep. Because, um, you know, my, my reverb is a zero offset, uh, seat post and I have my seat slammed all the way forward. Um, well not slammed, but it's all the way forward to where the last hash mark is. So you're at the maximum you recommended. You're not at the very front of the rail, which is not a good idea to, to, 
<clears throat> push that thing all the way forward yeah. to the bend. Never do that. Yeah. Go to the go to the lines. Um, because if you had a mishap there and your saddle breaks, uh, I'm thinking of you, Neil, or a friend of the podcast, Neil. If your saddle breaks, it can cause severe damage to places where you do not want severe damage. Absolutely. So, yeah, it can be pretty bad. Yep. That did happen to Neil, by the way. Tragic yeah. story. So that I think that covers it, right? I think so. I think we almost yeah. did a deep dive on saddles right kind there. Kind of, yeah. It's pretty good. Okay, uh, Sean, he says, uh, how much rear hub play is acceptable before becoming unsafe? None. <laughs> Continue on with this question. <laughs> yeah. He says, I have an Easton Haven Garvin 29 wheel set, and I've noticed some slight play in the rear hub. I rebuilt this wheels hub last summer, and I'm now worried about the prospect of rebuilding every year. Maybe these just aren't the right wheels for me, and I need something more robust? So, Sean, with your Easton uh, wheels, I don't know if you have the champagne-colored version of the the Havens or if you have the black M1 hubs. If you have the champagne-colored hubs, those originally came with a non-angular contact bearing, and they were a non-adjustable preload. So when they started getting play in them, they were like a cheap stands hub or like a Novatech where you pretty much just junk the bearings and put new ones in. So the bearings wear out, and that causes the play. Yes. Okay. And so uh, Easton did an update for that hub that included angular contact bearings and an actual preload adjustment end cap system so that you could actually you know, increase bearing life of that. If you have one of the black M1 hub versions, it comes with angular contact bearings and has all of the preload adjustments. And as it does, and I ran the 26-inch versions of the the black M1 hubs, the M112s, uh, with um, carbon rims and everything, those, I would get free play in those every so often. You just have to take them apart and you have to adjust the preloader, which takes, I don't remember if it was a 12 or a 14 millimeter Allen okay. um, in a vice. And you know, there's a, there's a whole procedure and it's on Easton's website, how to do it. Um, but as I recall, um, if you have one of the older champagne hubs, they will send you the update kit I don't know if they'll do that anymore, but they were sending it as kind of like a warranty recall thing mm. um, to some customers. But you know, either way, get on those angular contacts, and those do require some adjustment over the life of the bearing. You shouldn't have to rebuild those every single year. You should just need to adjust them every few months, and that's it. Awesome. Cool. That one, that one's covered. Uh, let's go into Kale's question. He says, Hey guys, great podcast. Keep it going. What are your thoughts on buying more bike than one needs for their local trails? Uh, and we actually, we had another person asking something, a question that kind of applies to this. So we'll, we'll lump that in in just a bit here, but he says, I'm upgrading from a 2010 Gary Fisher X caliber. It's a hardtail 29er. And I'm trying to pick out a new full suspension 29er. I live in the flatlands of Illinois where anything more than a short travel 29er is probably overkill. Thus my dilemma is whether to buy a nice short travel 29er and just rent a bike when I visit some epic trails or buy a bike that might be overkill for most of my rides, but quite capable on some Colorado adventures. Hey, why not both, Kale? <laughs> there we are. Yeah, that's the... Should buy both. Yeah, right. That's yeah. your, that was your wallet speaking, not Steven. Yeah. Uh, he says, I definitely want a carbon frame and a full suspension 29er, so I'm okay with spending some money. I'm not too concerned about the build kit as I plan to upgrade components when they wear out. I don't plan on trying to win any cross country races, but I would like to ca- would like to casually participate. My priorities are really one fun, two speed and efficiency, three everything else. Could you help me narrow down the field of bikes before I hit hit up some bike demos? Any advice would be appreciated. So, 
I, I actually, I have kind of strong feelings about this one. Yeah. So I see a lot of people, uh, with a Bronson or a five, five or an SB six or a specialized enduro or Trek slash or insert whatever enduro bike. And they're constantly riding trails that you're like, Hey, on my ASR, these are tame trails. Why are you on a full enduro bike? Exactly. Yeah. And I think that in like, um, this, so specialized, this is a good example of specialized specialized has their, um, Epic hardtail. So few people really need that bike. Yeah. Um, because that one has like steep angles, super light, everything else. And, and honestly, full suspension 29ers now are so good, so efficient that you're going to just going to be faster on that bike probably anyway. Yep. Uh, even if it comes at a weight penalty. So they have that, then they have their Epic. Most people these days just seem to be skipping by the Epic cause it's a little long in the tooth in terms of geometry and everything else. Yeah. But then they have the camber. Everyone just skips over the camber and they jump to the stump jumper, the full suspension one and the enduro. And it's just, to me, it blows me away because the camber is the bike that 99% of people should have. Yeah, It's like with Santa Cruz, the 5010 is the bike yes. that 99% of all people should have. They don't need a Bronson. They don't need a Nomad. Yeah. They buy a Nomad or a Bronson because they go to North Star one to two days a year. Yeah. You know, or they go and ride gnarly trails one out of 10 rides, yes. you know? And my point with this is sure, you can have a bike that's more capable when you need it. And I get that if you want that. But if you want to improve the quality of 99% of your rides instead of just 1%, then I would go with a short travel 29er. Yeah. They are so capable. A bike like my ASR, that thing punches so far above its weight. If you can get one with good geometry like that bike, yeah. then it's just going to like, uh, you can look on Yeti's website. They have a Southwest proven here video and that's Joey Schusler. And I can't remember who else rode with him, but they're, they're riding the gnarliest trails in Moab on ASRs. Yeah. Granted, those guys are incredible riders, of course, but it, it just shows that these bikes are totally capable. Yep. I'm sure it might be a little bit more easy when you're riding the gnarly terrain and everything else. But once again, keep in mind, how often are you really riding that gnarly terrain and how often are you riding a lot of just typical terrain? Yeah. I would personally buy the bike that's just going to be more typical for what you'd have. Exactly. So um, I would stay to, I would <clears throat> try to drift away from a cross country specific full suspension 29er in Kale's case. Yeah. And I would go more toward a trail 29er because most of them these days are pedaling just as efficiently as the XC ones did from a few years back. Exactly. But they are not twitchy. They handle really well. Um, it'll be a much more fun bike. And that's your number one priority. Cannondale Habit. Yep. Camber. Well, not the Camber. I forget what the 29 inch version, the Stumpy. Yeah. Um, or the Camber 29. Camber. Yeah. That's um, awesome. Or a 4.5 or an ASR. Yes. Or, you know, there's a, there's a bunch of different lightweight 29 inch trail XC bikes yep. to go with the Canon. I already said the Cannondale habit, you know, yeah. there's, but yeah, there's a lot of options out there. There really are. Yep. And this one, like right here, um, <clears throat> another question, this one I was asking, uh, should I get the 4.5 or the 5.5 from Yeti? Uh, the 5.5 seems like it could be overkill for the majority of what I ride. Or should I just put a 150 millimeter fork on the 5.5 so shrink it down a bit in the front? No. And no, my answer would be stick with a 4.5, keep your 140 millimeter fork, or even you can run a 130 on that bike and it's still going to be super capable. The guys from Yeti even say if you're going to be doing more, you know, less gnarly stuff and more trail riding and and maybe even some XC stuff, yep. the that bike, it's a it's a recommended configuration. Uh there's an alternative configuration I should say to run a 130 on it. Yeah. And, so. and the the 4.5, it's it's amazing how capable that bike is. Not quite as efficient on the climbs as the ASR, but holy crap does that thing. Yes. It's it 
it, it's kind of like lowercase likes to party. Yeah, yeah. you know it's but I it's, mean Nate Hills partied a lot. Oh, he parties a lot on it, but he's yeah. Nate Hills. So. Yes, true. Yeah. yeah. Um, Terry, he says, do you have any good ideas on fork seal protection? I want to save my seals and bushings. Why did they stop making fork boots? The mug goes straight into the arch and just sits there grinding on the stanchion. So he has two different issues there. Yeah. But yeah, go ahead. So um, good ideas on fork seal protection. Nothing. Yeah. Because um, I'm sorry, but fork boots. They trap dirt and trap water and trap mud, and that's why they don't use them anymore in motocross. That's why they don't use them in automotive because they actually deteriorate yes. the seals and the life of them. So no, you you want them mm-hmm. to be open. Look at um, look at, mm-hmm. and if you really just want to have a great time, look at old motocross footage on YouTube from the eighties and nineties, uh, the late eighties. Shock boots started to disappear right around right when we got into the 90s. Suzuki was still running right side up forks for geez, all the way up until like 95, I think. And they were not running shock boots on there, they had plastic guards in front. But once again, if a shock that's more for rock, that's for rocks, that's it. And the, the fact is that those usually trapped more dust around those key areas, and it was a spot for things to collect, and it would end up screwing up your seals, yeah. Um, so no, you don't want that. And technically the, the mud does not go straight into the arch and it does not sit there grinding on the stanchions. The way that the actual dust wiper is designed actually is not flat and perpendicular to the stanchion. It has a little bit of a lip to it. So it actually pushes it away as it, you know, as it, uh, um, as it, you know, gets onto yep. the actual dust wiper. It does. So there's, there's a reason they're designed that way and it's actually, it doesn't work the way that you're thinking it does, Terry, and I'm not trying to be condescending, but right. no, you do not want that. You just want to clean them off after every single ride. But yep. during your ride, they're not sitting there grinding on your Kashima code or whatever coating you have. You don't have to worry about yeah, it. Yeah, you don't have to worry about it. Yeah, I clean my, I just make sure it's very clean down there. I don't shoot with a pressure washer at my seals. I do. Um, you, you, you can, right? It's not going to screw them up. Well, just not pressure washer. I just use, you know, water, well, yeah, like yeah. a hose, <clears throat> right? A hose, yeah. yeah. Uh, but the thing is, even if you were to spray them with a pressure washer, they wouldn't disintegrate, no. right? The thing is, they're more robust than we give them credit for. Yep. That's what I'm getting at with that. But um, I wash that area every time with uh, with a soft sponge and a lot of soapy water, and I yep. make sure it's super clean. Yep. And then I also, every once in a while, what I'll do is I'll actually take some suspension fluid, yep. and I'll just drip a little bit around there, and then I'll cycle the fork through, yep. and then I'll drip a little bit more on there. And you'll see that when you do that, it will leave like rings of gunk or or dirt. It'll push it out. It'll push it up there onto the stanchion. And if you keep doing that, then clean it off. Then just drip a little bit more oil if you need to. But usually I just put like two or three drops on there. And then I do that uh, and cycle it through five times, clean it off, cycle it through five times, clean it off. And by that time, I'm not getting any more gunk on there. Exactly. So Yeah, the, the Fox float fluid works really well for that on any stanchion. Yeah. You know, that's, it works really good. And that's you know pretty much what I do is after every few rides, what I'll do is I will take a, a small zip tie, the end of it, mm. and stick it down into the dust wiper and, and that's a good pour idea. some float fluid onto the dust wiper and spin it around inside the dust wiper and you actually pull all the gunk out and get yeah. more float fluid into that stand or into that actual dust wiper. Um, Another tip for all you hipsters out there: you can do the same with your thirty-five millimeter film from your hipster camera. There you go. Yep. We used to do that for motocross, by the way, with film. Yeah, it works really well because it's nice and thin. So, yep. anywho, yeah, hopefully that that uh, answers things there for you. I feel like we're giving out a lot of good information. What is thirty-five millimeter film? And so it's a it's it's film for a camera that you put into it's. It's a thing, and you put it in a camera, 
and it is exposed to light. The way Jonathan is using his hands right now yeah. and describing this is hilarious. But keep <laughs> so, going, sir. So, and it's exposed to light, mm-hmm. right? That light passes through um, the, the camera, hits that. It then kind of serves as like a negative or, a, or like a, a, a carbon copy, if you will, of that photo. You can then take that and you can then develop those. Mm. And it's in, in a dark room. You use chemicals. You can even play with those chemicals to make them, you know, different colors appear. How do you see in the dark room? Uh, a red light. But it's dark. It's dark still, ah. but not fully dark. Okay. Anywho, we Next just went question. into photo stuff. Let's get into <laughs> it. Josh, he says, hey, guys. And by the way, I'm sure like photo guys and hipsters are probably just rolling over in their grave because they did a terrible job of explaining that. Yeah. So don't care. Sorry. Uh, Josh, he says, hey, guys, short, medium, and long. Short derailleur cages look great. Medium are okay. And long look awkward. I'm looking at you, XX1 Eagle or X01 Eagle. That's a long cage. And he says, can you clear up the best time and place to use these devices in the best way, please? Short Thanks, cage. Green dog. Green dog. Mm-hmm. Um, short cage derailleurs. Road bikes and downhill bikes. That's yes. it. That's the only you, use. You cannot use short cage on any wide range anything. And why not, Stephen? So the entire system, as the chain grows, when you're going up the cassette into larger cassette cogs, mm-hmm. you have to be able to take up that space. Yes. And there's just only so much that a short cage derailleur can move back and forth to help that chain grow. So basically, if you were to try, number one, it probably wouldn't even allow you to, like in the case of a SRAM one, which we'll get to in a bit, because their their derailleur cage or their cage lengths are slightly different than what you might think. But um, if you were to dial in the chain length for the smallest cog and you had a short cage, it w- you wouldn't have enough chain to hit the bigger gears. You couldn't even get up to like an 1136 on a short cage. Yep. That really doesn't work. Like even, your limits are 30. Yeah, most cage. road <clears throat> most road derailers now are mid cage. Yeah. It's everyone's going toward that because they're getting wider range in the rear. Yeah. Um so short cage downhill these days is almost one of the only spots where you're going to see it. Yeah. Um mid cage is something that honestly is like appropriate for road and gravel maybe. Yes. Uh but when you're talking about mountain biking, long cage is pretty much what you need. Yeah, you know honestly the before eagle all of your XX1 and X01 were they were technically considered the 11 speed stuff was actually considered a mid cage derailleur. Right. And you know on one by systems and a narrower range 2 by 10 or 2 by 11 a mid cage also works. Mm-hmm. So you can run like a Shimano XT or XTR mid cage derailleur what they call their GS derailleur. Yeah. If you had like an 1136, yeah, or sometimes even an 1140 on a 2 by System as long as your as long as your your chain ring spacing in the front was you know narrowed down to like how Shimano does it with the twenty six thirty six or twenty four thirty four where there's only a ten tooth difference up front. Yep. you can run a mid cage derailleur on a two by. Yep, but just squeak by. Yeah, but if you're gonna do a two by with a wide range E thirteen like TRS race cassette, no chance. You have to run a long cage. Yeah, and something <clears throat> to cover. We're not just talking about the le- the length when we are talking about the cage length. It's not just the distance between the pulleys. No. With SRAM, it's especially, it's very different. It's very different on SRAM. We're so, talking yeah. about actual length of the derailleur body, the parallelogram that it has, yeah. that when, you know, where the derailleur mounts to the frame, it kind of comes down at an angle, and then it has that, that um, and then it has the next section, I guess, that kind of jogs in toward the wheel, yeah. and then the derailleur cage comes down from that. Yeah. That section that jogs in toward the wheel, that's where we're making a lot of the change with those SRAM derailleurs. Yes. And you'll notice, uh, I got, uh, for my... 
Crux, mm-hmm. I got a, um, I came with a mid cage. Yeah. I got a 1042 cassette and it only had one by up front, 42 chain, 42 tooth chain ring. Yeah. And we could not, uh, it did not work. The mid cage. It will not work. So we had to get the long cage. And when I got the long cage, I remember looking at it and going, wait a second. It's the same size. It's the, the cage uh, yes. is the same length. Yeah. Um, so it's a bit of a misnomer, just like clipless, right? Being a misnomer. Yeah. It's a little bit of a misnomer. Really. You're talking about the derailleur arm length. Really. That's like where things are different with, uh, and is it that way with Shimano as well? Or do they keep that closer to the same? Or? They've, they've started pulling in their longer cage stuff gets shorter physically and they're moving that upper jockey wheel back to create an arc path on it. Right. So they're, they are shortening them up, but a long cage, like your force one yeah. versus a long cage XT. Yeah. The XT is way longer than our force one derailers. Yeah. And we're talking about the distance between the pulleys there yes. much longer. Yeah. 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 So that's the, that's the usage of them. Ruben, he says, hi, thanks for a great podcast. A question to Steven. In regards to the E13 TRS, I have read that the shifting with SRAM XO setup may not be that smooth. Is this correct? No. Is the difference in price between the race and plus worth the extended range in the race? Yes. Also, if you run a 28 or 30 tooth chain ring, is there need for a longer chain if presently running a 28 chain ring and an XO10 or XO1 1042 cassette? Okay, so to start, first of all, um, I don't know where you're hearing that from. I've put the the TRS Plus and TRS race cassettes on tons of different setups. The only setup that I didn't like the shifting that was actually not very smooth was Shimano XT on the TRS Plus. So the XT 8000 11 speed with the TRS Plus cassette, there was a little bit of ratchety uh, between third gear to second gear, second gear to first gear. It was not as smooth as I would have liked. Okay. As soon as you put a Shimano chain on it or a SRAM chain on it, it was actually better. So the, so the SRAM, SRAM chains chain. and the KMC chains work phenomenally better with that ER, uh, the E13 cassette. Interesting. Doesn't matter your drivetrain. You can cool. run XT or XTR or SLX 7000 all day long with the E13 and just run a Shimano chain. I'm sorry, a SRAM chain or a KMC chain, and it's beautiful. Awesome. The but t- wait, you can run a SRAM chain. And have different cogs and non 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 SRAM cogs, yes, or chain rings, yes. Mind blown, absolutely. My mind isn't blown. So I say, no matter what you do, if you're if you're on XO though, you already have an XO. You know, you have an either a PCX one or a PCXX one chain. Yeah, and those work great with the TRS Plus and the TRS Race. When they start to stretch, you'll notice an issue there. Yeah, keep your chains. You would notice you know, that with everything. You would notice it with everything. Yeah. Um. So, but as far as the price difference, yes, I think the race is better because it has a smoother jump between its first five gears. Mm-hmm. Um. And they completely redesigned all of those jumps from you know 46 to 39 so it's only a seven tooth jump Mm -hmm. it's actually a nice smooth jump um and if your chain was originally set up correctly with your 28 tooth you should be able to go up to a 30 and you should be fine on that trs race awesome that's pretty that's pretty solid advice there steven that was a lot of questions that was a lot of questions with that let's get into the business business is business time All right, this one, this is actually a common request that we had for people breaking down, uh, or for us to break down handlebars, stems, 
headsets, fork offsets, the cockpit, if the, you will. Yes. The front end things of yes. a bike. So let's, um, <clears throat> let's cover that. And a couple things. So the first question that we had that I think <clears throat> that we should cover in this one is always is a hotly debated topic, but we had somebody asking what is the best way for them to determine handlebar width because they were feeling pressure in this case to go wider than they felt like they should be going. We've seen XC guys from way back in the day and their hands are practically touching each other. It looks like in the exactly. center. Right. Yeah. And now we see guys with Enduro bros running bars that are, looks like they basically have stuck like a whole two by eight on their bars. And then they're holding on to that thing yep. stuck way out there. Yeah. So <laughs> handlebars, uh, it's common to go wide now and handlebars will usually come anywhere from 800 to 750 millimeters and they'll have positions for you to cut them down if you need to usually little marks for it. How do you find out in your case, Steven, how have you settled on what bar width do you use and how can we tie that into how big you are, uh, your size? Cause you are a, a bigger guy. Yeah. And then how did you land on that? So knowing that I have really broad shoulders, I typically like a wider handlebar. Okay. I never liked, um, I never felt comfortable or felt, felt stable, um, steering a bike with anything under 750. Okay. Um, and you probably have, do you know like what suit jacket size you'd wear or anything? I'm actually a 46 regular, I think, but I'm slim in the, in the waist, but my shoulders require a 46, I believe. I think that's how they measure suits. Yeah. Yep. Um, so I can squeeze into a 44, but then I'm kind of like the fat guy in a little coat, you know, (laughs) so a little bit. Yeah. Um, so I do have a very wide shoulder and I've got very strong arms. Um, with this me, this is like your Tinder profile. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I don't have my giant uvula anymore, though. So yeah, I, yeah, we can't all be perfect. Swipe left in that case. Yeah. Let's continue. Um, so I played around with eight hundred bars, and I I love uncut eight hundreds. It gives you a really good stability, and it makes it so you're not working your arm muscles nearly as much. Mm. So for me, it seemed to re- like reduce arm pump and reduce fatigue in your arm muscles in general. Mm. Um, but I've kind of settled on you know now that I've gone to the long travel twenty nine er, and it's a little bit less enduro bro. Mm-hmm. I, I cut the on the five five. I actually cut my six C bars down to seven eighty right off the bat. Yeah, um, just you know, bring it in a little bit. It's a, and that's millimeters that we're talking about. Yeah. There. yeah. And the thing is, you know, people say, Oh, anything over seven twenty, you're going to hit trees everywhere. I never, I never scraped a single tree in some of the tightest terrain at race pace on a downhill course yeah. with 800s. I've never had that issue. You just have to have the spatial awareness to know what you can actually get by and not get by. Yeah. So, um, but I'm sitting at 800, and then my new Jekyll that just showed up yesterday actually comes with 780 bars, and so I'm just going to leave them as is right now, Yeah, and we'll see if I need to go wider or if 780 works on that bike. We'll touch on that bike at another point, but we, we, can't, we can't really legally touch on that we yet. We can't legally technical, like, geek out about it, but I did get the new Jekyll that doesn't exist yet. Yes, it's pretty yeah. sweet. It is. Yeah, it's actually in the living room right now. Yeah. It's pretty cool. Um, so... A couple things on this. Richie Rude, uh, you'll even see Cody Kelly too, but Richie Rude runs narrow, pretty or relatively narrow bars. Yeah. I think he's on 740s, uh, somewhere around there, 750s. The thing about Richie Rude, though, if you look at his build, he's not wearing a 46 suit jacket. No. He's strong. He's a big he's guy, but like he a doesn't, stump, yeah. but he's, done, he's not hugely broad, yeah. right? Um, so he's going to be running narrower bars. That's what he would like. And I think that that's the big thing that people need to realize is bar width isn't based off of what bike you're riding. No. Bar width is not based off of what stem length you have, even though it can be influenced. Um, bar length should first be 
determined as long as the bike fits properly bar length should be determined by your wingspan so to speak yeah um especially we're talking about the width of your shoulders yes for me i find that i work really well with 740 um and i use i wear like a size 38 suit jacket like you i'm wide in the shoulders and narrow through the narrow through the waist um but if i was to the way that i've actually figured this out is i go down and get into the push-up position. And when I get into the push-up position on the ground, um, we're not talking a push-up so that your arms are flared out. Yeah. We're talking so that your elbows are bent and that your from your elbow to your wrist down to the ground, it's just a straight line. It's not at an angle. Yeah. And at that point, I land pretty much spot on at 740. Yeah. And a good way for you to check if your bars are probably too narrow or too wide And once again, the caveat here is that your levers are in the proper place. But if your levers are in the proper place, meaning that it's just enough to put one finger on, right? It's not like further outside on your bars, but... And just a little quick thing on that. Um, if you're setting up your, your bike, your handle or your levers, your brakes, you should set them up so that just your pointer finger is the one that catches right at the edge there at the lip of the lever. Yeah. That's where you should be having contact. You should not be able to use two fingers. Yeah. You should not be able to use three or four. Those levers should be tucked in so that your, your index finger comes in right at the little lipped edge of, of your lever. Um, so anyways, if that's set up right, look at where your hands are wearing out the grips. That's yep. And in my case, uh, with seven hundreds that I had, or seven seven twenties that I had, you were hanging off the edge with your pinky. Yep, I was yep. just off the edge. Yep, and I was always wearing out the edge of my grips. Now I probably have about uh, half a centimeter, a centimeter of where the edge of my hand is, where it really makes an indentation and wears out my grip. So it's perfect. Now that's right where I am too. Yep, and that's where I like it to be. So that's where your handlebar width should be. Yeah. Now height. Should people use riser bars? Should people use flat bars? When should they use those? The thing is, a lot of bikes nowadays, especially our longer travel bikes, are designed around a lower rise bar. 20 mils and maybe 15 millimeters of spacers in the stack height of the steerer tube. You don't want to go much higher than that because then what you end up doing, and I'm dealing with this with my friend Mitch right now, he just got his 5.5 and he had me set it up with 25 millimeters of spacers underneath it. Goodness me. And he wanted a riser bar set up because he felt like he wanted to be a little bit more upright. The first thing he complained about when he started riding it was he's like, I feel like the front end's twitchy and bouncy and it's all over the place. I'm like, well, you're sitting way too upright. You've got no weight over the front of the bike. And so therefore your 40 mil rise bars and your 25 millimeters of stack height is exactly what I told you would do was that. Yep. That's what's going to happen. You need to get more weight over the front of the bar. Yes. So more weight on the front within <clears throat> reason, obviously. Yes. I mean, you don't yep. want to be riding it like a unicycle, but of course. more weight over the front is going to make your bike handle so much better. Exactly. Yeah. So yeah, so you know, for me, I usually put a five millimeter spacer under my stem mm-hmm. and that's it. So I nearly slam my stack with 20 mil bars. Yeah, and, and I it. and I get a slam that stem. You can look them up, slam that stem uh top cap for my headset. Yeah. And and we're not talking top cap for your your stem, right? On top, top cap the, for your headset. For the headset. Yeah. So like a cover, if you will. Yeah. And that is absolutely flat. And my stem is pushed all the way against that thing all the way down. And so, it's inverted. Yes. You have your negative six degrees or negative seven degrees. Negative six degrees. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So, and, uh, but if yeah. I was to run, for example, on the SB55 uh, that I would love to build up, I just don't know if, now that we got Sarah's bike and building up that one, I'm just not sure if we'll be able to. But yeah. with that one, looking at that one, I would probably run just a short bit of stack. Yeah. And I would run yeah. it like a, a 10 or a, I would go for, 
maybe, you know, a 20 mil riser, but I would, I would look for the lowest rise bar that I could. Yeah. And that, because that's a personal preference, I like to be low in the front end. Yes. Um, and that's also, I'm pretty active on a bike. I move around a good amount on the bike. I don't stay static. So as a result, I'm getting my weight low and back. I'm moving all around. So having a lower front end helps me climbing. And then it also just makes me feel a little bit, uh, lower CG too. Yeah. So, um, so a lot of guys on XC bikes run flat bars and nobody should scoff at that. No, uh, there's, not at all. there's a reason for that. They're trying to get their, their front end as low as possible to help with climbing. There's a tool for every job. Yep. Just cause it's not enduro doesn't mean it's not a good tool. Exactly. Uh, there are even some guys that you see that run like inverted, uh, they'll run like a bar that's got like a rise yeah. more or less. And it's upside down. You wouldn't want to run a riser bar like that necessarily, but that like there are certain XC bars that where actually, the top is flat, but you can notice the bottom has a little rise to it. Yeah. Those are usually like an eight to 10 millimeter rise. Yep. And what they'll do is they'll flip those over inverted. Yep. Exactly. The envies are, are famous for doing that. Yep. Their flat bars actually go inverted, right? Yes, yeah. they do. Yeah. Um, and I don't run mine inverted and I like, to, <clears throat> and I have a low front end, but it's, it's low enough. Yeah. So you'll see that. Um, let's get into stems. Okay. Uh, did, do we feel like we've covered handlebars well enough? Um, I think we've started to. The, yeah. the, the dots are going to be connected as we go through the rest of yeah, this. Yes, that's true. It's all it's combined. All it's all one yep. big, yeah, you know, whatever, schmegma yeah. group of <laughs> that things thing, that yeah. all play together. So, um, smorgasbord, I think Schmorgus- was the word you were going for. No, it wasn't, but that's okay. Okay, cool. Words are hard. Moving on to stems. Uh, short. So if I echo every pink bike enduro bro, you need to have a short stem and wide bars. Well, yeah, of course, duh. So why do people have short stems? Uh, Especially these days, because it used to not be that way. So the big thing with short stems is it gives you more of a neutral steering. Instead of you kind of pushing, if you can imagine with a longer stem, you're really pushing those lever arms forward and back, and you're using a lot more back and shoulder. Mm -hmm. Whereas if you have a, a short stem you're very neutral and you can pretty much just steer without rotating your back. You also get like a really precise feeling steering because you are straight over the center of the steer tube or closer to it. As close as you can be. Instead of having that like almost like a leverage ratio going on where you're reaching way forward on that. So it's a more direct feel with your steering. That said also, top tubes have gotten longer in the past five years. Uh So we don't need to stretch things out with a longer stem. We found that if you make the top tube longer and the stem shorter, you get a better handling bike. Exactly. So that's why short stems have become en vogue and they are beneficial. Uh, you can see like really the shortest stems you usually see are like 35. I know there are some that like make stems that just like sit right on top, like your handlebars sit on top of the stem, but that's a whole different can of worms because then you're getting into how much stack height that adds up to your actual, you know, to, to your reach up there. Exactly. So, but 35 millimeter stem is usually what people see for XC bikes. Let's start there and work our way toward Enduro. Okay. Um, XC bikes, I'd say that anything over 90 millimeters is probably too long. That said, if you were to look at world cup cross country these days, you'll see a lot of guys on stems that are longer than 90 millimeters. Of course. Yeah. That said it's changing. And I think that XC, especially the top levels of XC, it's commonly way it's they're behind the curve. Yeah. I know that sounds crazy that the top pros would be behind the curve, but think about it. The guys that are running the teams are ex pros. The yeah. ex pros know how to do it. And I'm doing air quotes because yeah. they did it before. So, you know, back in 82, when I did it this way, this is how we should do it now. So it takes generations for things to catch up at the top level of pro road racing and XC racing. It's just common. Yep. And it's kind of silly. 
Yeah. So you'll see, and you've seen their stems getting shorter and shorter, and it's a, it's a good thing to see. But I think anything longer than 90 millimeters, too long for XC. If you have like a 50 millimeter stem on an XC bike, it's probably not a properly fitting XC bike. So usually, I mean, anything from 50 to 90, I think is probably good, but uh, that's where you'd want to be. Now, trail riding anywhere from, I would want, I would go shorter than 90. I would be looking at like a 70 or a 60 or a 50 somewhere around there. Yes. And when you're getting into more enduro stuff, you can go even shorter on that too. Depending. Uh, yeah. And yeah. But you can also <clears throat> stay a little longer too, like yeah. 50, 60, even. Yeah. yeah I ride 50 millimeter stems on pretty much everything. The new Jekyll came with, I think of, it looks like a 35 or a 40. Super it's really short. short. Yep. But that bike also has a 65 degree head tube angle. Right. So it's a really, really short, uh, Slackness. Really, really slack and really long top tube yep, on that bike. Exactly. Yeah. So that's the the deal with stems. Now mm-hmm. rises. Uh, most stems come with a rise. It's rare. It's it's harder to find a stem that has zero rise yeah. than to find one with like a three six something like that. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> if you a stem with, so here's a quick question, Stephen. Yeah. If let's say that uh, for some reason I want to run my handlebars higher. Okay. Right. I want to have my my grips up high uh, compared to what they would be. Would you advocate that they run spacers underneath and like a six degree stem, or would you advocate that they try to find like a super high rise stem with less spacers? I mean, it really depends on what you're going for for fit. There's a lot of um, like beginner endurance like road riders yeah. where I would say, hey, let's do a 35 degree stem, you know, and you know the bike stock comes with say a 100 millimeter six degree rise. Yeah, let's go to a 35 degree. 70 or 80 yep. and what it does is it's going to pull it back and up slightly. Yep. So getting it closer in and moving it up. Um but with that said, I mean there's no tried and true this is what you do. I mean it's really an N plus 1. What are you trying yeah. to achieve? I don't like anything over um I feel like you start having uh bearing issues on your yes. headset if you start stacking more than like 20 millimeters of spacers. Yeah. I don't like when people put like the the extenders that add like 2 or 3 inches no, it looks, or it looks bad too. It looks bad <laughs> and it's it's really not good for the bike itself and yep. it's kind of a safety issue. Yeah, you're going yeah. to be putting more leverage on that steer tube which is going to cause bearing wear which is going to cause plenty of things too and yep. possible danger of even breaking your steer tube which would be terrifying. Exactly. So yeah, I always advocate for running less stack if you can and in spacers. And if you're going to have, if you have to run stack, then run it with an angled stem if you need to. Yeah. Uh, does that cover stems? I think that covers stems. Headsets. Oh, wait, oh, yeah. last part in stems, the 31.8 versus the 35 millimeter mm. clamping. There's race face and Easton have kind of spearheaded this whole 35 millimeter clamp thing. It's a moto thing. It's a moto thing. That is the motocross, you know, clamp diameter, twin walls, fat bars, those type of things like pro taper pro taper was the first one to come in with that that size. Yep. And then after that, Renthal made the twin wall handlebar and yeah, it's, and here's the interesting thing about that from the motocross industry side of things. Yeah. There's actually not a whole lot of evidence that in fact, there's no evidence that you get any better ride out of it, uh, that you get any better strength out of it or anything else. No. The one thing that you do get with the twin walls is usually you get a resistance to bending on like a massive impact, but yeah. that's a really heavy dirt bike. Exactly. Mountain bikes. It's going to be really darn hard to yeah. bend your bars, especially carbon. Yeah. 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 If your carbon's bending, there's yeah. probably going to be some splintering too. Yeah. So the only thing with, um, 
that I like about the 35 mil clamp is you have more clamping surface area. So you actually get a better clamping force without stressing the material, whether it be an aluminum bar or carbon bar. That's a good point. So more that, surface area. Yeah. And more surface area. And it's also a bigger diameter. So you can actually make the material thinner there yep. to save some weight. Makes sense. And then it actually makes the bar like uh, my six C bars Yeah, at 800 millimeters with a 35 mil clamp are lighter than the Envy downhill 800s with a 31.8. They're by like 40 grams. There we are. They're that much lighter because that bigger clamp. That's the only reason they're lighter is that bigger clamping area allows you to have thinner, you know, less material there. Um, so it actually creates a stronger bar with less material. And to be clear, that tapers down to the standard width or is, standard diameter. I yeah, which say. is 22.2. Yep. So then you can run all the normal brakes, grips, all that stuff. Yeah, so exactly. pretty easy. Uh, headsets. Let's cover headsets. Headsets. There's, uh, it used to be an external thing. You could buy the Chris King one and you showed off your fancy colors. Yeah. It's uh, like, do you have a, a one inch headset or a one and an eighth? Oh, that's it. Oh, one and an eighth. Yeah. yeah. It's changed so much. There, yeah. There's so much difference now. Um, there is just counting up offhand. I didn't even prep for this. I think there's, um, probably nine different standards. Yeah. You know, internal cup, external cup, inset cup. You know, uh, some frames have the headset race built into them, whether it be machined in with aluminum or molded in with carbon, and you literally just put a bearing right into the frame, and that's it. That's it. And then you have your crown race, and you have your top cap assembly, and then yep. that's it. Um, Yeti, you know, they just have a 44 millimeter, mach- you know, hole in the top and a 56 millimeter in the bottom. Yep. The cool thing about 56 millimeter is it allows a full inch and a half bearing in the bottom yep. to be inset and allow for no added stack height. Yes. Santa Cruz, on the other hand, has decided to use a 44, 49. The problem with the 49 is the inch and a half bearing is too big to fit inside that 49 millimeter. So then you get more stack. Hole. So you have to run an external cup on the bottom and you get 12 millimeters of stack height automatically. Whereas with the, um, with, uh, Yeti. The Yeti, you've only got four millimeters of extra because of that cup being set into yep. the frame. And other brands like Specialized, for example, theirs are all fully inset. Theirs are fully frame. inset, which eliminates all that extra stack height. Yep. Um, so there's just different standards and you're kind of stuck with what you get on a frame. There's no, Oh, I want to change this and do this differently. You just are stuck with what you're stuck with. And the best way to figure out what it takes is just go onto the website, look at your bike. They should have an FAQ section or something like that. And it will tell you what yours uses. If you don't see it, call them up, ask them, send them an email and they'll let you know which headsets you should use. Or the cool thing is cane Creek. Um, their website has what they call the the fit finder Ooh, and nice. they have pretty much every bike out there um, f- you know from the early 2000s on and you just put in your year make model and it tells you exactly what headset type yours takes yep and you'll see with the cane creek ones it'll have like number slash number and that's talk whenever you see that that's the first the first number is the top diameter the yes. second number is the bottom diameter so like on a yeti just for example, every Yeti has always been the same, and I just know these the best because it's right. you know it's what we deal with most. Your top is what they call a forty four slash twenty eight point six. What that means is the the diameter of the hole that the upper headset cup presses into on the frame is forty four millimeters in diameter. Yep. 
That's what it presses into. Yes. Then the 28.6 is the inside diameter of your upper bearing, which happens to be your inch and an eighth steerer tube. Right. On the bottom, it's what they call a 56 slash 40, meaning that the hole in the frame is 56 millimeters in diameter, and the hole inside the inner, the, the lower bearing. bearing is 40 millimeters, for, so you have an inch and a half. Yep. Now, they also make a 5630. If you have a straight steerer tube, you can actually run a 56 outer with a 30 millimeter inner, and hey, you magically have one of your old school non-taper forks working in a Yeti. But they don't even make those forks really anymore, no. and why you would you want to do that about. anyway? So. so if that didn't confuse you all enough, well, hopefully it clarified it, but it, hopefully it shed light on the fact that it can be a bit of a, a, bit of a, a bush to work through there. Oh, that's actually what Jared Graves, um, when he puts the, the uh, Fox 40, or when uh, not when Jared Graves now, but when he did, when all the guys at Yeti put uh, the, right. the Fox 40 fork on their SP60s, it straight, it straight it's a straight steer, so they would run that 5630 lower cup assembly, and that would be how that you make a sense. DH6C. That makes sense. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So you can look it up, uh, check that out. Um, headsets, you also see that some headsets, it'll be like the same size, but it'll come with different top or different height caps. Yes. One thing that can be really helpful is instead of just running, just because it's always cleaner to have less spacers, yeah. to have less objects on your bike, right? Yeah. So if you can look, they might have like a domed spacer or a cone spacer or something like that for the top. Yeah. They'll have a tall headset cap or tall low, headset or cap short or low. Cap, headset cap. Yeah. Yep. And then you can set that up. Uh, so that you can get a taller one then get rid of one of your spacers. Yeah. Kind of handy. Uh, last thing to talk about, Stephen. This one, I never know from which angle it is measuring, but fork offsets. Now, with Fox, I don't even think Fox makes different fork offsets. They do. They do? But that you can't get like a, a 27.5, 36RC2 in different offsets. They just make their offsets, and that's what they that's are. They're designed is. around the size of the wheel. Makes sense. Yeah. RockShox, on the other hand, you can get a good amount, or some of their forks, you can get them in different offsets. Some of them, yes. Yeah, so the RS1, that I have, for example, yeah. is one of those situations. Yeah. But that's because the just the lower assembly is you can offset it however they want in manufacturing with that end cap. Yeah, exactly. Now, do you know how these offsets are measured? Yeah. Like from which point to which point? Because usually it's like 54 degrees, 45 degrees, something like that. Or oh, millimeters, millimeters, forgive me. Not degrees. So what they do is they take the, the center line of your steerer tube. On okay. the bike when the fork is installed. So if you were to draw a line straight from that steer, steer tube down to the ground. No, not straight down. Straight down at the angle of the headset. Right. Yeah, so that's what I mean. Yeah, so, following yeah. the angle of that steer yeah. tube all the way down. So in the crown assembly, you're going to have some offset built in. Yep. And then as it goes down the stanchion, you have some offset built in because your axle is forward of the stanchion assembly. And we're talking about forward offset. So we're talking about how those, how far those stanchions at first are scooted in front of that steer tube. And then we're talking about how far the lugs or the axle is scooted in front of that. Yes. So that's how, that's what creates your, your rake or your offset. Yes. So fork rake. The, the, when it comes to the fork rake, if you, there's a lot of, of design, like Calfee designs has a really good picture, a very good basic picture showing this. And it's all trigonometry based. It's all about mm -hmm. triangles and angles. So the further fork rake or offset you have forward, mm -hmm. the more, uh, the less what they call trail is. So if you've okay. got that, if you've got like what we were talking about, that straight line through the center of the steerer tube at the, the, the steer tube, um, the head tube angle. Yes. Going straight down to the ground at its angle. Yep. Where it intersects the ground. Then you draw a line straight down from the axle of the bike. It creates a triangle. Yes. So the more rake you have, the, the less trail you have. Makes sense. Okay. Less trail creates a more twitchy bike. Yes. 
less rake offset. So the more rearward the axle is towards that stanchion and yep. all of that, and the less crown offset you have, you create more trail, yep. which creates a stabler uh, platform off, you know, at high speeds off road. So awesome. Yeah. Okay. So commonly you'll see like a 46 or a 51 for the RS one. That's what they have for 29 inch wheels, but for 27.5 they only have a 42. So you, your fork might be designed separately. If you have questions on which is the best to use, which offset once again, asking your manufacturer is the key on this. Yeah. Uh, instead of going off of what some guy says on a forum or anything else, just ask the manufacturer because chances are they have a guy that tested that bike with maybe different offsets and he knows exactly what type of behavioral characteristics you'll get out of that bike exactly. with yeah. that. So yeah. did we cover everything there in the front? I think we are opening up Pandora's box. I think there's going to be a lot more questions on this coming along, but this is kind of a, this is one of those hard areas that is really an N plus one, how you set up a bike, how you put all this information together. Yes. Because every bike is different and every rider is different. And, yeah. you know, every, you know, every rider has a slightly different, you know, um, radius and ulna length and, you know, yeah. everything is so different. So yeah. this is just going to open up more questions, which is good. That's what yep. we're here for. And recapping on rules of thumb. If you are trying to figure out what bar width is best, go down and do those pushups and check out where your hands sit the outside of your hands, you know, see where that sits when you're doing pushups with your arms straight down to the ground, yes. not, not flared out or in, yeah. uh, that should help you get in the ballpark with your bar width. So you can test things out. Remember, you can also buy bars that usually have cut marks so you can cut them shorter, yes. which is always nice, but you should not try to make your bars longer because <laughs> that would be really bad. That'd be weird. Yeah. I, I saw a guy doing this actually on the internet the other day. He had lock on grips mm -hmm. and he wanted wider bars. So he scooted his grips out. That is an absolutely terrible not idea. Good, not safe at all. No, so uh, don't do that. Uh, you can only cut them shorter, not make them longer. Yeah, uh, and so that's bars, uh, stems. It, once again, it, most stems are going to have an angle offset to them yeah. to some degree. You can flip it down or up uh, to help. And really, you would just do that because you're trying to adjust how high your hands are or your where you have to reach, right? Yeah. Uh, stem length, shorter in many cases is going to give you a much more direct feeling of steering and kind of like less leverage on that. Also, like you said, uh, less fatiguing too in a lot of cases too, uh, which can be nice. XC guys, it's normal to have them at 90 down to, you know, 60, yeah. somewhere around there. Uh, anything below that, you know, 60 and down for enduro trail, trail stuff. Enduro, yeah. So that's what we'd recommend there. Headsets, ask your manufacturer what you need to have. And uh, there are a lot of different standards and fork offsets. Same thing. Not as many standards, but ask your manufacturer. Yep. And that should help you figure out what's going on and, and give you some type of an idea about how your bike's handling and how to change that. Yep. With that, Steven, let's go into the tips. You don't care, they're counting on your tips to live. Okay, uh, gonna rip through mine really quick. Okay. The shock whiz, uh, we talked about it last time. I used it uh, mm -hmm. on two rides. And here's my verdict for me, it's not useful. And because we're just that good. <laughs> yeah. <they're> probably, <laughs> I've probably made it sound. Well, I mean, we are the best podcast in the world after all. I've, according to that review. It's official. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so here's what I would say. So but in the end, all of it, all it told me was that I might want to slow down my rebound a bit and no, because once again, my bike likes to party and I like that my bike likes to party. Yeah. Right. So I don't want to slow down my rebound. I like the way that it rides. Um, but that's all it said for me. And everything else was all in line. That said, I, I do know what I'm doing with suspension setup. And I also have a very simple shock. 
it's the RockShox Monarch XX, meaning that, so the Monarch, uh, we're not talking any of the ones with a piggyback reservoir or anything else, just the simple Monarch. Yeah. Uh, that one, the, here are the adjustments. Air pressure, and that effectively controls your compression. Um, you have a compression damping setting on there, but with the XX, you only have locked out or not, and it is like 100% locked out yeah. or not. It doesn't have like a three position setting or anything yes. else like that. Also, my bike is kind of designed to just be ridden wide open anyway, yeah. like the suspension design, and that's what I find best with that one. So really, the only real adjustment I have, two adjustments, are rebound damping and my air pressure. That's yeah. pretty much it on that shock. So I can't really adjust much anyway. If I had something like a Cane Creek double barrel, if I had something that had high-speed compression, low-speed compression, or high-speed rebound, low-speed rebounds, and high speed compression, low speed compression, that's kind of tricky to get all of those dials in the right spot. Yep. This could help with that. Yeah. That said, it's not going to tell you low speed, low speed compression, two clicks, high speed compression, two clicks. It's not going to say that. No. It'll give you like suggestions like, uh, you might want to slow down the rebound or you might want to speed up the rebound or slightly more air pressure. Which, you know, and for the average rider, that's huge. Hugely that is big helpful. because you have no idea how many people that I work with that just don't know, and that's because they just don't know. It's not a good thing or a bad thing. They yep. just don't know how to set up suspension. So they get this the bike and they run right it here. Would help phenomenally. Yeah, they It'll, just get their bike out of the uh, from the dealership and they run it. Yeah, you know? uh, hopefully dealership or hopefully the shop sets up SAG, and then after that they don't touch anything. And there's probably a lot of room to be gained. Yeah, I just wish it was a little cheaper because um, it's pretty expensive. And I think that it's what's the retail that, on that? It's like three. It's almost four hundred dollars. Oh wow! So I think mm-hmm. that if people if more people had access to this, it would be really good. So for a bike shop, I could actually see this being helpful as like a rental, like having this there so then people can rent it and then use it. Um, I think that would be really good. And if like for Sarah, I'm building up my wife's bike right now and building up her bike. I know that my wife won't be able to relay exactly the the kinematics of her bike and the suspension and what it's doing and what needs to change, right? Because she's pretty new to mountain biking. So this is going to be awesome because I can put that on there and it'll be all taken care of for her. So if you don't know a lot about suspension setup or don't know how to understand what your bike is doing underneath you in terms of changes that you should make to your suspension, then this would be a great tool. If you have a complicated shock, and you still know what you're doing with suspension, this could be a great tool. Very much so. I'm just a unique edge case that I have a very simple shock, and I have my suspension dialed in pretty well. Yeah. Um, so according to that, it's dialed in perfectly, except for the rebound, and and the rebound is just slightly off. But no, I retain my right to keep my rebound in party mode. So Good. Steven. My tip is going to be announced in three days. Ooh. Cannondale... Um, is releasing all of their their 2018, the new Jekyll and the new Trigger. And and I've spoken before about my my lack of comprehension with some things Cannondale, right? Yeah. On the podcast. Yep. And uh, I also respect them because they do things differently. Yes. I think it's cool. And it still works out incredibly well. It's not just like they do things differently, it doesn't work. Yep. This bike excites me. Does it? Yeah. Like I saw this bike today, you brought it over. Yep. Um, even though I, I don't know what I've seen, I should say, I haven't seen what I've seen, yeah. but that bike is pretty freaking cool. So tell me with uh, the thing that excites me is that they're still doing their Cannondale way of, you know, of coming around different issues with like their attitude adjust system where the original dyad had, you know, the two different travel modes and the mm-hmm. two different, how it sits in the sag differently when you're in your climb mode, this setup has that but it doesn't have the ridiculous diad rear shock. Yeah. And the other announcement is that, you know, uh, 
you know, there were some issues. They finally nailed the lefty supermax once they went to the two spring lower bottom out assembly. Yep. But I think it was a day late and a dollar short yeah. for the lefty in general for the supermax series. The lefty in the hundred mil and hundred and twenty mil market is Great. amazing. Yep. But the supermax is has now well, been benched. Meaning longer travel. Yeah. yeah. So anything over one twenty, they're not doing the lefty anymore for now. They are mm-hmm. looking at redoing a lefty three or something like that for 2019 or 2020 because that's Cannondale. Um, but this bike has seemed to, on paper and not in person because we haven't seen it yet, we even don't know it's sitting in your we, living room. We don't really know what yeah, we're talking about. We don't know anything. Yeah. It seems to have fixed every qualm that you ever have with a Cannondale. Yeah. It's pretty darn. And my favorite part. The you have the fabric cageless bottle in there, and it fits. It looks like the bike was designed around the bottle. It's, it's like it's so, pretty cool. It's like so perfectly fit in yep, there. It's exactly. pretty cool. So, I it's a really cool bike. Yeah, we will be able to share more about it soon. Yes, we will. Stay tuned. Next we'll have weekend. some. Yes, and we'll have some killer pictures of it too, which are going to be really good. It'll be good. So, anyways, thank you for joining us, everybody. You can find you can submit questions to this podcast feedback. Just let us know anything you want at mtbpodcast.com. You can go there and listen to the latest episode too. You can find this podcast and share it. Please share it. That would be awesome. Share Share it it on Facebook, share it on Twitter, share it on Instagram, whatever else. Uh, And you can share that on whatever social channel you can find. You can find us at MTB Podcast or The MTB Podcast on Twitter. And we appreciate it, everybody. We'll talk to you all next week. Now, it is Sunday, so go to Dirt Church. Yes, true. Have a lovely day. guys jonathan here just wanted to thank you again for listening and let you know that if you like the song that you're hearing now and the one that you heard in the intro it comes from wave riders entertainment my good friend tommy walter check it out if you're looking for more beats like this or some awesome tracks to listen to we'll talk to you next week